0: Hello and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror classic, The Shining, is my pal and comedian, George Kane. George, thank you for doing the show. It's an honor. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Yeah, it's really great. Uh, I reached out on Facebook and said, who here would want to talk about The Shining with me? And I think George had his message in to me before I even walked away from the keyboard uh, so I was like, okay, he's really into this, so I figured let's give George a chance. He's never been on the show. And, of course, you know, why not have a comedian on when you're talking about the yuck fest known as The Shining? Um, it's only fitting. Yeah, it's only – it's perfectly fitting. Uh, for anyone – I mean, does anybody not know this movie? If they don't, the basic plot is, of course, based on the Stephen King book. Uh, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance, a struggling uh, former school teacher, now would-be writer – who wants to get some time away to to work on a writing project. So he takes a job looking after the Overlook Hotel, and he's going to look at it over the winter months while it's closed down. And joining him is his wife, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and their son, Danny, played by Danny Lloyd. And as we learn fairly quickly into the movie, this is not the most uh, solid nuclear family there has ever been. And uh, as the winter bears down on the Overlook Hotel. Uh, Jack starts to go, well, you might say starts, he already, maybe he already is, a little nuts. And the real question of this movie is, is the hotel haunted? Is Jack nuts? Are are both things true? Uh, Stanley Kubrick wasn't terribly interested in answering any of those questions definitively, and I think that is one of the things that makes this movie so powerful, is that it, it, it is open to interpretation. Um George, you know why do you love this movie so much? Okay, so real
1: quickly, I have a brief personal history with this movie. I, I grew up sort of lower middle class, so I did not grow up with HBO. But every so often, cable would sneak you in a free weekend. <clears throat> right, so right, right. I remember that. You, <laughs> get, you get to the end of the dial, instead of a big blurry and occasionally some interesting sounds, this time you turn and lo and behold, it's Jack Nicholson. And I watched it at an entirely too young age to either appreciate all of its merits or to be witnessing that kind of uh, gore, um, such as it is, but uh, really, it's haunting. I don't care when, what age you are when you first see it; it's it's going to stick with you. And it's it's my favorite movie of all time. Um, wow, Kubrick's my favorite director. This is my favorite Kubrick uh, film. Ipso facto, this is my favorite movie. I just feel like no matter how many times you see it, you'll you'll find something new, some new wrinkle, or a new aspect to improve upon or veer off of something you previously thought. And, you know, let's face it, room 237, the documentary only feeds the fodder of that fire, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, 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 in fact, I was so beholden to the film that I I resisted reading the Stephen King novel up until just a couple of years ago, because I just didn't think it needed to be improved upon. And so, of course, we could touch on the deviations from uh, source material to what made it to the screen. Uh, I still think it's one of the few instances where the film is better, uh, and I would, fight vigorously to the death. Anybody who wanted to argue that with me, I do like Stephen King, but I think Kubrick's better.
0: Yeah, I mean, Stephen King himself would argue that. Uh, He's he's very openly not a a fan of this film, and I can understand that because it's not his book, and that's what he wanted, essentially. Uh, I read the book, too. Uh, I was not overly impressed with it. I I felt that the sort of uh, constant interjections by Jack's thoughts just kind of kept taking me out of the the, the the book, the story, and you know, the, the thing that I, I come back to over and over again with The Shining is the oppressive sense of doom that hangs over this movie, literally from the opening shot. Uh, part of it is the music. The opening theme uh, is by uh, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind, and that is, to me, some of the most effective opening music of all time because it feels like I I, I had a hard time sort of figuring out how how to describe it, but it feels like what it might feel like if somebody was behind you constantly pushing you forward – That's that's how it feels like to me. Like it's just you're just like stop it, stop it, stop it. I don't want to keep going. And this music is just bearing down on you, and it it, it's accompanied by this astonishing helicopter shot uh, as the car heads its way to the Overlook Hotel. And it's this tiny little car, you know, lost in this sea of wilderness and this tiny little road. And it to me, it's just it sets the tone immediately of like this is scary, this is weird. And you know, for a movie that is not a gore fest, other there's, there's only one person that dies in it. Uh, it is remarkably scary, and it's, it, it just, it weaves a spell that for the two and a half hours, to me it never breaks, and that is remarkable, uh, because I've seen lots of horror movies that are 90 minutes that can't keep me entertained or keep me on the edge of my seat, and this thing manages to do that for the entire runtime, which is, again, a testament to Stanley Kubrick. Um, now we should probably get into a little bit of why he chose to make this movie, because him directing a movie based on a book by Stan, uh, Stephen King. It's pretty commercial. For, for Stanley Kubrick, it's a pretty commercial entity, uh, notion. Uh, you and I talked about this before we recorded, and there's, there's basically two words that boil down why he did this. And what are those two words, George? Uh,
1: Barry and Linden.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to describe had, to everybody what, what that means exactly? I won't deviate or waste the precious time
1: here, but he made this very uh, gorgeous, sumptuous. Banquet of the Census deadly, boring period piece with uh, Ryan O'Neill that, uh, again, technically costume, it's, it's gorgeous to look at while it lulls you into a sleep. Now, thinking about this in current uh, film history time, so he made this film, you know, lauded by critics and loved by no one. And then around this time, you forget that horror is now starting to get some real cachet with uh, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist. So now it's no longer these pure hammer film, universal monster genre creations, but there's real um, cre- uh, credibility to this genre now. And of course, I had to think that Kubrick at that time thought, I'll, I'll get a, a piece of this cottage industry of respectable horror um, and he, he's never really been known one to do his own stuff. A lot of his films, almost all of them, are from source material, but obviously he makes them his own. Uh, and so I think he just said, here's, here's a chance to hitch my wagon to this new genre horror respectability angle that's kind of burgeoning.
0: Yeah, I think so. And it said, you know, because he is such an artiste, and he always was, you know, he couldn't just director straight adaptation he had to do his own twist on it and yeah this this film is a Kubrick film from beginning to end going from the you know I, one of the things that, that that Kubrick loved to do of course is mess with your head and I mean there's there's talk about where hes stuck in subliminal images inside of um, uh, clockwork orange and there's all those things that he he able he's able to sneak in uh, under the radar. And one of the things that this film does, and this is something I, I never noticed until later. And it came to DVD and, and and there was like analyses of it. And we can get into There's a whole movie analysis and analyzing this movie, which we can get into. But one of the things that is so disturbing about this film, and you don't really notice it until you've watched it several times, is the overlook by itself. Clearly, the overlook has some, some bad mojo going on. And that could be separate or connected to the fact that Scatman Crothers playing the, uh, the, the, the sort of – not the handyman. What is Scatman Crothers in? I forget what his position the, is. He's oh. the chef. Oh, the chef. That's right. Um, he's, he has the power of The Shining, and he connects up with Danny. So there's something going on there. But one of the things I love about The Shining is that the Overlook makes no sense in terms of its architectural design. Hallways lead to nothing. There are doorways that cannot exist. There are windows that cannot exist. There's an opening, the, the scene where Jack uh, gets interviewed for the job, uh, where he leads to Mr. Ullman's office. And Ullman has a window in the, back of his, on, in the back wall of his office that cannot exist. By the way you follow the actors walking, that window cannot be there, and yet it is there. And that just gives a sense to a very unreality of this place, that there's something deeply, deeply wrong with this place. And you are just, you know, you're sort of begging poor Wendy and the, and their son Danny to just not go along with their father to this place because you just know there's so much bad stuff happening. Yeah, and
1: I, as someone who considers himself a bit of a student of Kubrick, I will tell you that there are no accidents in Kubrick movies. And He's the auteur's auteur. So if it's there, whether it's, you know – mess with your head stuff, red herring, call it what you will, simple misdirection like he's a magician. Uh, he thought of it six chess moves ahead. It wasn't like they just said, oh, hey, Stanley, sorry, you know, we meant to shoot in this room, but the lights in this room, who cares? Let's just get it get it in the can. No, that would never happen. So, yes, uh, the illogic of, of the environment sort of underscores, you know, with the music, there's that ever-present dread the ever present that even in the quiet, calm moments of simple domesticity where she and uh they're watching cartoons or a movie and he's having a little sandwich, you just feel like this
0: this cannot last.
1: There's a calm before a storm
0: and it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I mean you you do wonder kind of what I maybe not, you don't maybe don't wonder what Jack sees in Wendy. I think you get the sense that Wendy's a pushover and that's why Jack is with her but you do wonder what it is with Wendy that she is with Jack i mean there's that scene with the child psychiatrist where she sort of half-heartedly explains how Danny ended up with a dislocated shoulder and that's because her his dad got drunk came home and yanked him really hard and pulled and pulled his uh, the kid's shoulder out and she makes all these excuses for him and you, you you know everyone sort of just buys into the illusion that yeah this is okay and you really feel bad for Wendy from the beginning cuz she's just so clearly overmatched by this domineering guy. And, you know, all throughout the film, he makes little side comments to her that are sarcastic and very, uh, you know, uh, very critical. And you, you just, you know, it, Shelley Duvall is, to me, a, a, was a great actress. She's, she seems to be in retirement now, unfortunately. She's tremendous in this movie. She apparently went through hell making it. Uh, from what we've seen of some documentary footage and some other stories, that Kubrick just put her through absolute hell Uh, making this movie and he was conversely very nice to Nicholson now I guess if you want to say that's because Nicholson was his star and that that was a you know a little mercenary or it could have been it, it was to break down Shelley Duvall's sort of psyche because she's playing someone who at a certain point is just shattered by the situation that she's in
1: yeah and again I would never again second question any Kubrick choice and so in casting, you know, in the book, she's this kind of self assured, the Wendy character in the book as a as a blonde, and and uh, you know your feet you can fi- uh, finish out that she's supposed to be attractive, and Shelley Duvall is a quirky beauty at best, um, not a curve on her except her skull, and uh, you know before this she was maybe known best for that little sort of half cameo in Annie Hall where she plays the real stoner quirky girl (laughs) says this crazy stuff to Woody Allen. So great casting choice, right? She's this, and let's face it, even though she's got him dry now, she's a classic enabler. Like you said, she's explaining to this doctor, you know, just the kind of accident that happens a million times with a child, except this time, you know, he just broke the kid's arm. So she's, yeah, this is the pat. See, and I think if Kubrick was riding her hard, you know, you have to look at the result. And he, yeah, if he scared the hell out of her, believe me, you buy it, you get it from the performance. And um, however he brought it about, I'm
0: sure he considers the ends justify the means. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, yeah, I mean, and in, in the um, documentary, the Stanley the Kubrick documentary, "A Life in Pictures," they they interview Shelley Duvall, and she is very clear-eyed about, you know, she's complimentary to Kubrick and she talks about how he got the best out of her. And she she said, she, she says two statements back-to-back, back, which seemingly are contradictory, but I guess not, where she says, I would never want to go through that experience again, but I wouldn't change it for the world. And Well, you know, sure, because yeah. he, he got her the role of a lifetime as olive oil. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, wow. That's a that's a heck of a back-to-back uh, set of roles for Shelley Duvall as Olive Oil and then and Wendy Torrance. Um, we want to talk about uh, Danny Lloyd as uh, as, as Danny. Uh, most people, I guess, I don't know. Maybe they know or they don't know that he didn't know he was making a horror film. Uh, Kubrick was apparently very very uh, protective of Danny as a as a child actor, and so all the scenes of Danny by himself. Uh, were shot sort of independently, and like any of the stuff where, where you see the twins and bl- you know the twins bloody in the hall, Danny was never in those scenes. So this kid just thought he was making a really intense drama. Uh, he didn't know he was in a horror movie, and his parents wouldn't allow him to see it until he was an adult. So he didn't know that until much later that he was in one of the most scary movies of all time. Well, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that this was shot in the studios <clears throat>
1: that Kubrick used in England. And um, obviously some of the exteriors in the Colorado um, where the hotel itself is, SD's Park, I believe. But the, the laws for British um, film and television about how many hours a kid could work were even more stringent than they are today. Something like two and a half, three hours a day max. So, you know, he certainly had to legally handle him with, you know, literal kid gloves uh, and considering what, let's face it if you didn't know what you were getting into and then by the time you're 18 you watch this movie and you're like uh that's me you know it's a good thing i didn't know um about the blood elevators and you know axes to the
0: chest <laughs> um what do you think like i've seen people argue about this about what do you think is really going on here in this movie is the overlook is the overlook um haunted or is it that uh, the you know Nicholson, it's Torrance is the problem, and Danny is the problem, and they bring the problems with them to the Overlook. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the
1: family dynamic is already fractured, and and I can touch on that in a minute. Um, I think the, the pivotal scene that is the well, you got to make up your mind now or not. Is when the catch to the walk-in pantry door opens, and Jack is freed, and he's having the conversation with the ghost on the other side of the door, Grady's ghost. And so I think we're meant to believe you can play with this mind trick, and is it all just a psychosis bubbling up to the surface? Is it cabin fever or a drunk who's getting dry and having detox psychosis? But the minute that chute opens and that door opens, you're, you're meant to say, okay, we, we really do have a haunted hotel on our hands here because there's no other explanation. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, now, I think I think I think you're you're talking and again this was a difference between the book and and the film is that they really don't get too much into the character's alcoholism, you know? He says I sell my soul for a beer and then he fantasizes this lovely three drink soirée in the gold ballroom with the best damn bartender from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. <laughs> and so he's clearly dry but longing for his next drink. And so that that's sort of just always there. Um, and then he's a, you know, we're meant to understand that clearly. He's got this writer's block. He thought he was going to come and isolate himself and his family, and that that would be an environment under which the wellspring of creativity would burst forth with his magnum opus. And obviously, that doesn't happen. And uh, I, I have to assume we're talking about a loveless, sexless marriage. They're very clever to show a scene at the beginning where Jack is kind of slyly, but not so slyly, checking out the butt of one of the leaving staff. So, you know, he's got a lot of problems on his plate, and that kind of isolation um, isn't going to do anybody any favors. But I, I believe that there's enough palpable evidence at the end. And again, once, and I guess we can dispense with the term spoiler alert here, right? I
0: mean, yeah, yeah. have seen
1: it now, too bad. Um, once Wendy sees the blood from the elevator and all the other ghost images she sees as she's in her last panic. I think it's meant to be okay. You, you you can dispense with the
0: is it or isn't it? It it is haunted. See, I I for the longest time I thought that too because I thought okay, there's the scene where she's running around and she sees, as you mentioned, the blood coming out of the elevator. She sees the 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 ball the um sort of foyer filled with skeletons and cobwebs and you're thinking, well, that's okay. She's seeing this. That's clearly what's going on. Part of me then thinks, well, is it that he is so nuts that he's dragged his wife into going crazy as well? And that's what she's seeing. But I don't know. But yeah, you're right. I think the scene of Grady opening the door, the freezer door, there is no other explanation other than a ghost has done that. So yeah, you got to assume that the hotel is, is that, that, that Torrance is a troubled man. The hotel has dragged him to that location and I guess you know eventually we'll get to the part with the end scene, but it 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 subsumes him, it it it, it envelops him until he is returned back into the sort of basic foundations of uh, the the hotel itself. And as we as we've mentioned, there's a whole other movie which again we can get to, devoted to the theories of, of this film. Um, you mentioned the scene where where Torrance uh, is looking at the one girl's rear end as she's walking by. That scene. The whole scene where he's talking to Ullman about the job and then they take him and Wendy around to the hotel, that scene is all set up. And most movies to me, when they have scenes of setup, you're just kind of biding your time until you get to the, to the real you know, meat of the movie. This scene is maybe my favorite scene in the movie. I don't know why either. It's just them talking, but it, to me, it is up there. Like, I put I put it up there with that and and the scene of in Raiders of the Lost Ark with the two government agents talking to to Indy and and Marcus as one of the best setups in all of filmdom. There's something. It seems so nice. There's some, but there's also something really scary about that. Everyone in the hotel is packing up and is in a hurry to get the hell out, and you're coming in. To me, that's a very disquieting feeling, that it's like you're watching everybody like, I can't wait to get out of here, and you're going the other direction. There's something very weird about that to me, and I think that's why that works so well.
1: Well, and and you hit on something good. Um, That's the last time we see them communicate as a family together, Um, and we we can get onto this if this is a good juncture, but uh, Kubrick said, and if you study his films, it's obvious that one of the main themes running through his films is the failure of communication, and it goes through Dr. Strangelove, and it goes through 2001, but um, let's start with the beginning. You know, they, they go to this huge hotel where they have one little suite in themselves, and yet they're always in different parts at almost all times, and um, you know, uh, Danny talks to Tony, the boy that lives in his mouth. That's who he primarily communicates with, and Shelly, poor her, she's communicating with these park rangers by CB. And she just wants to gab with them, and they're like, um, <clears throat> "Is there anything else we can do for you, Miss Torrance? Like, we got to get back to work." And of course, Jack is off talking to ghosts. So, failure of communication amongst them—you uh, know—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a big theme. And like I say, what you just said—the scene where they're—you know—perfect for a child, cozy. We don't drink, you know. He's all avuncular and happy face of this family. But w- what were you doing, Danny? Blowing up the universe? Um, that's the last time they all talk to each other as a family, and the rest of the time it's two of them talking uh, or individuals talking to people who aren't even there.
0: Hmm. That's very interesting. I don't think I've ever noticed that uh, in all the times I've seen this movie. I don't think I've ever really thought about that, but yeah. And yeah, that that line he has when, when they talk about the bar, and he just goes, we don't drink. And there, you just feel that menace in there that it's – it's like, yeah, you don't drink, but it's 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 because of a bad reason. It's not because you just don't drink. There's just yeah. there's a kind of forced, almost like forced gaiety to it that is uh, deeply deeply unsettling. And if I was a
1: woman, I'd be like, uh, no, you don't drink because you're an irredeemable alcoholic. Wendy might want a glass of wine with dinner, but she can't because you're an out of control drunk. So you know, there's very much this. Oh, I'll just speak for all of us since that's kind
0: of what I do. Yeah. And you know there's there's such trouble too when the in like the, the I think it's like the first day or the second day of them staying in the hotel and she wakes him up with breakfast and he goes, What time is it? And she says, It's eleven thirty. And you're like, Good Lord, he's he's doing this for a writing project and he's already sleeping till eleven thirty. That's we're not off to a good start here.
1: Right. Well, <clears throat> You know, if There's nothing... I will defend one thing. If it's your first day on the job and you're your own boss, you're going to want to sleep in a little bit. But no, your point is well taken. And uh, that scene starts something I'll just go ahead and segue into. It's a theme or, or constant throughout the film is mirrors and mirror images. And uh, it starts from the very first scene, that, that great helicopter tracking shot over the lake where it's a perfect mirror image of the sky and the mountains in the lake and um it's not long before we see Danny have his first incident because he's talking to himself and Tony in the mirror of the bathroom and then puts himself into that auto trance that the child psychologist mentions and something that happened that I noticed almost immediately watching this film is that with very few exceptions when Jack is talking to a ghost or sees a ghost he is either looking into a mirror or into a reflective surface and it's just about 99 percent bulletproof if you go and watch it all the way through um and then of course there's the twin girls mirror images red rum backwards in the mirror um uh, murder uh jack's holding this gorgeous naked woman and then well, lo and behold the mirror you're holding a desiccated old lady corpse so these these mirrors uh are, are heavily in play and if i had to get all grad student on it, I would say that maybe the message here is that Kubrick's saying that, yeah, whether there's ghosts or not, if every time you see a ghost, you're looking in the mirror, maybe we're the ghosts haunting ourselves. Like that's some sort of, I don't know, very philosophical take on the human condition. Um, again, I don't want to stray into too heavily into the pedantic world of room two, three, seven, but it, <laughs> it invites it. It invites it.
0: It does. It absolutely does. Um, one of the, well, you know what? Let's get into that a little. We can just get into the room two thirty seven. For anyone who doesn't know, there is a whole documentary called Room Two Thirty Seven based on all the crackpot and somewhat less crackpot theories uh, based of of The Shining. One of them that's a little less so is that this this movie is about um, what we did to uh, the Native Americans. Because uh, there, there's a scene early on where they're talking to Alman, and Alman mentions that you know when the when the hotel was built, they had to fight off Indians to, to claim the ground, and then he says, you know, this place used to be for the jet set, politicians, and movie stars, and and uh, uh, all the
1: best people, all
0: the best people, which is a really creepy term. To refer to anybody as all the best people, and there were scenes that like uh, there's some food in the in the pantry that has a, an Indian head on the front, and we see that sort of prominently. So some why that is one of the theories that 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 is what this movie is about is that we we destroyed and killed the Native Americans, and now those are ghosts are coming back. And you know in the opening theme, which I mentioned, it has that kind of sound to it. It has some sort of almost of a Native American call to it. So I didn't think that that theory was was out of line. There were some the ones that saying. Kubrick faked the moon landing, then you're heading into real <laughs> Alex Jones territory. But, but I mean, it, it says something about The Shining that you can make a 90-minute documentary of just about people coming up with theories about it.
1: Yeah, and in one of the cruelties of life, when I found out that um, a veritable brain trust was going to get together and give my favorite film of all time a true think tank experience, I thought, well, how could this possibly be bad? But I'll give you the how it could possibly be bad. And it's I couldn't even finish it the first time I tried to watch it, because I was just like, "How? who are you people, and what <laughs> other things could you be doing with your time? Um, at, a, at about the one hour, 23 minute mark, I was watching it this morning, this uh, one nerd, cineast type guy goes, so we were talking about how we could do some interesting things with this film, and we thought, well, there's all these things about mirrors in it, why don't we make a mirror image of the film itself, and superimpose a straight linear from beginning to end version of The Shining and then interlap, interpose, the end going in reverse on top of each other, superimpose, so you can see them. And then they show all these scenes of the overlapping of the two scenes in the overlay, and they're trying to insert meaning into it. And I'm thinking, if that's all well and good, and God bless you, but if you're watching the film in a way that the director never intended – any such meaning is therefore not really that meaningful. You know, go get high and interject meaning into whatever you want. But (laughs) this, this is mental masturbation at its most solipsistic. And it looked great, really interesting stuff, but I just don't think there's a lot of there there.
0: Do you think that, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I do wonder what Cooper would have made of these things. You know, I think he probably would have just rolled his eyes a little. I mean, he clearly steadfastly refused any definitive explanation, because he lived for another 19 years after The Shining, and he had been, I think he gave some interviews, and he just flat out did not want to get in it. He didn't explain his films. He didn't, uh, you know, he, he died before DVDs really came out. I can't picture him ever doing an audio commentary for any of his movies. That's just, that's just not anything I can imagine the man doing.
1: Yeah, I think he's smart enough. If people are asking these questions, then you're a fool to answer them. You know, be, be the wizened genie who is only imperceptible, right? Why come down from Olympus to explain stuff to us mortals? I, <laughs> I get it. I get it. And let's, let's face it, by the time he had made the shining, his bona fides as one of the greats was already you know, credentialed. It wasn't like he got lucky on this one. This was a master at masterful play already, you know, died in the wool. But um, so but again, there's enough. There's too much smoke for there to be no fire. So, for example, numerology comes into this in the number 42. Um, So 2 times 3 times 7 is 42. 42 is the year that the Nazis came up with the final solution. Um, There's an earlier scene where Danny's in the mirror in the bathroom talking to Tony, and he has a little jersey sweater on that's got the number 42 on it. Um, There's a scene where Danny and his mother are in this huge open den space, watching a television that is not plugged in showing a movie called summer of 42. 42, Yeah. (laughs) And it's all about these sort of very subversive, edible issues, a younger man falling for an older woman whose husband is at war. Um, and you know, let's face it, there's edible stuff going on in the shining in no small amount either. So I, I think he was sly enough to play with these things. I don't think he would ever stipulate to any of it, but, um, he he's he's going to make you work, and like you kind of hit upon at the beginning. He's playing with your head, and that's why I think when you see the shine the first time, you're like, all visceral impact, all just punch to the gut. But there's got to be something at the back of your head going, I think I'm going to need to see this about 18 more times before I really can put a bow on it.
0: All right, Well, that's perfect. Let me ask you about this. I, I've always been fascinated by this. If, 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 if uh, that is true, let's say Kubrick is layering in all this stuff that can only be perceived after you've seen the film 18 times, in an era where uh, – and The Shining was still in this era. It was right at the end of it, but it was still there, where you couldn't see a movie 18 times other than going to the theater. What – is that realistic? That, that a film would have that much layers to it. Now, of course, I guess that's absurd because people have been making movies like that since the 30s. Citizen Kane is, is, is a film that benefits from, you know, constant rewatching. But I wonder how did certain directors think that that stuff would be perceived if seeing a film that many times was so difficult? Nowadays, every director knows well this movie I make is going to live on in infinite, you know, in infinity because people are going to own it and they can watch it. But I mean, how can any director assume that uh, the- all that stuff will ever be picked up on? Hey,
1: man, it's just good business. Why make a movie that people go see once, right? I want that 18th ticket sale. Come on, <laughs> he's getting paid on the back end of these points too. You know, he he knew he knew there was a thing called HBO out there, and I think he had an idea as to how you get people to mythologize your film. And um, and I'll be honest with you, I, I guess, you know, it's not like it's this nerds domain only film. So many people love this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, King people who like it better than the book and just Kubrick people and Jack Nicholson fans. And I just thought this is a movie that I, it could have gotten to Rocky horror levels. I could have easily seen this being a movie that people see every Friday, Saturday and Sunday at midnight and they're shouting lines at the screen. I, I feel of it that passionately and that beloved and I may be very well alone in that respect. But um yeah, I, I think that there's some movies, Citizen Kane, uh and even more bubblegum stuff like Jaws. You watch Jaws a hundred times before you start to notice the shooting stars, right? <laughs> so I mean, you, you you are meant to look this was a movie made for guys like us. we, we love movies. We love decontextualizing things. We like to see source material and compare it to the film. So, yeah, maybe he had no idea that one day people like us would be this obsessed with it. But uh, um, I'm glad that there are more people so taken with it than, than just me and the folks in 237. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the, around Halloween last year, there's a theater here in Philadelphia that plays midnight movies on Friday nights. And they ran The Shining. And I took my nephew because he had never seen it. And I was like, well, if you're going to see it for the first time, let's see it in the big screen. And, you know, I was really heartened to see that the theater was probably almost full. Uh, wow. for, for for a movie that anyone could get at the time, it was on Netflix. It's it's not there now, but for a while it was. You know, a movie that anyone could get with a minimum of effort, and yet they were making the effort to pay. You know, eight dollars to see it at midnight, and I thought that's that that tells you something. It's it's it, it rewards constant. Uh, you know, revisiting because it just gets sort of deeper and scarier and weirder. And you know, one of the criticisms that that Stephen King had of it was the casting of Jack Nicholson. Because he said Nicholson is so clearly crazy from the beginning that in his mind there's no suspense because you just know that Torrance is nuts and he's going to go off. And so that's why he perceived someone a little more on the bland leading man side uh, for Jack huh. Torrance. But but to me, I think that's the tension of it is that – I mean uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock famously said tension is not when the bomb explodes. It's knowing that there's a bomb under the table. And it's going to explode. That's tension. And so to me, you know by the fact that Nicholson is Nicholson and with those eyebrows and that receding hairline and that – you know this is all going to go wrong literally from the first scene of them together. You know this is a bad idea. And watching that bad idea unfold in front of you is to me – that's the tension of it. And it – Yes, maybe if you had cast, you know, Barry Lyndon, Ryan O'Neal or something, somebody really bland, you know, not, maybe not really bland. I don't mean to insult Ryan O'Neal, but someone more traditionally, quote unquote, normal tension would be, gee, is he going to go off? But to me, it's like, you know, he's going to go off because you're just like you look at him. I mean, who would ever choose to be locked up anywhere with Jack Torrance?
1: Yeah. And um, Kubrick doesn't spare the rod. You get that weird dynamic. Almost immediately, because they're in the, the VW bug, and they're on their way up to the hotel, and they're talking, and he brings up the Donner party, and um, where they ate each other up. And <laughs> they ate yeah, each other up? <laughs> yeah, and then he says, it's okay. He heard about it on the television. And, you know, he's so <laughs> sarcastic, so jaded and world-weary, um, so the smartest guy in the car, that, like, that that's not good parenthood. That's not good husbandry. That's being very condescending and um, deigning to just have this conversation with my wife and child to just pass the time while there's nothing to do. You know, it. That's that's immediate. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't make you wonder how quickly things are going to go off the rails. You know, almost immediately.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I guess the sense is. I mean I I talked earlier about you know why would Wendy be with somebody but like this but clearly Wendy is somebody who doesn't think a lot of herself she has some pretty bad self esteem issues and so she's with a man who's abusive and she's willing to you know forgo all their friends and and everything that their son knows and and go hole up in a hotel in the middle of winter with basically no, and she has nobody to talk to as you said other than the uh the sheriffs you know, who just talked to her over the radio, and even that's a very, you know, pro forma communication. But she's she's there all by herself, and you never get the sense that she has, like, books to read or anything. Like, she's just sort of staring off into the middle distance watching some TV other than running around the maze, the hedge maze, with, with Danny.
1: Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of little breadcrumbs about Wendy as Kubrick has written her with the, the partner, but, like, just the way she dresses, it's a lot of monochromatic smocks and just... uh Turtlenecks underneath corduroy jumpers, and <laughs> and uh, again, maybe uh, I'm that was the style at the time. And again, I I know that he cast her for a reason, and she's this very semi androgynous figure. You know, I mean, again, I'm not. This is not me dogpiling the sweet Shelley Duvall, who I know is talented and a good actress and attractive in her way. But yeah, this smacks of um, he's kind of that big man on campus before he turned a big drunk and she was just smitten that this guy would pay any attention to her and you know she believes in him 100% even after this crap with the kids she still thinks that that great American novel is just in him and that's why she wants to draw him out on that like maybe after lunch you can tell me about what you're working on and he's like well I might actually you need to get some work done first you know so he's he's clearly he's the alpha here and she's clearly the willing
0: Omega yeah we should talk about uh, Scatman Crothers uh, a little bit too, because he he's really tremendous in this movie. He was recommended to Kubrick by Jack Nicholson. Because uh, they were friends and they had done uh, Going South together, and uh, this this movie famously featured a scene of, of in the uh, the pantry where Scatman is talking to Little Danny that they shot I think over 150 takes of, and it's I think it's the single it's the Guinness books of World Records of the most takes of any scene, and apparently he drove Scatman Crothers to some point cry out loud, you know, something like, "Dear God, Stanley, what do you want?" because he just couldn't figure out what it was that Kubrick was was trying to get at and he is really great in this movie he's he's avuncular but also a little scary because i mean the whole scene where we finally you know when he talks to Danny using the shining that's very upsetting the fact that he he seems to sort of be talking to Danny outside of the purview of his parents is upsetting uh, we have that cutscene—not cutscene, but the, the sort of cutaway to his apartment or his house, where he's got all the nude paintings of above his bed. Oh, classic. Which is just, you know. And then again, he's very funny with the whole scene about where he, you know, he, he's talking about how he's going to get the signwinder back to the hotel, and you know, the, the people here running the hotel are a bunch of assholes, and that's yep. it's a huge and- laugh line. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Kubrick broke him because after this, he was only good for voice work as Hong Kong Fui. So this was (laughs) clearly his swan song in front of a camera. But, uh, and I, I wonder about, um, so he's the chef and, and of course he, he's the one who explains the shining to Danny. And, and that's more fatherly than you ever see Jack being to his son. You know, he's, he's being parental. He's being paternal. He's, he's, gently guiding this kid through something very confusing and scary and he's making him feel like it's okay and but he's also warning him don't go near room 237 there ain't nothing there." stay out stay out he's are you scared of room 237 no i ain't scared no room 237 you know he can't help himself um but yeah i think the fact that he survives at the end of the book and kubrick needed him to come to a fairly grisly demise in the film um speaks to the fact that I think he really wanted to ratchet up just how, um, you know, this is going to still be a horror movie. And in the novel, there's these topiaries and a fire hose that moves around. And that's all very much the supernatural. But a guy lunging out from nowhere, burying a uh, axe in your chest, that's got a little bit more immediacy. And I, I think because it starts to ramp up at the end when everything's going off the rails, you know, a horror movie needs
0: a good old fashioned axe murder, and uh, boy, boy, did we get one! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 the only he's the only person that gets it. I mean, we see dead people in the in the movie. There's the twin girls are lying there dead in a pool of blood, and we see the guy with the axe thing, you know, the axe wound in his skull. But we the only actual murder we see is, is poor Scatman Crothers. Uh, speaking of the ending, uh, as again, maybe some people know, there was an original extra couple of scenes. After the shot of Jack Nicholson, uh, Jack Torrance, uh, frozen in the snow. And it takes place in, the, in a hospital. And Wendy is there. And Danny is there. And they are visited by Ullman. And uh, they talk about that uh, they, you know, the snow has been cleared. And nobody can find Jack Torrance at all. There, there is no body uh, there at all. And those scenes apparently were in the final print. And they were shown at least to a couple of audiences. And then Kubrick himself saw it and had it cut, and it was literally the work of two different people. I I read an interview with with one of them a couple of days or weeks ago. It was literally the work of a guy to drive around to the couple of theaters that were showing this version of The Shining and cut the film himself, literally cut out the strip and, and patch it all up. So that scene is apparently, people seem to suggest it's lost to the ages. I... I always tend to doubt that. I feel like you know, what, someone must have kept it somewhere. And there right. are there are some stills of it. You can find it online, and you can find the dialogue. What do you What do you think of that ending? Do you think it? I I feel like the movie ends perfectly where it ends, which of course is that shot of the Overlook Hotel in nineteen twenty one, and there we <coughs> see Jack Jack Torrance. I don't as much as I want to see what happens to Wendy and Danny, and I want to see them get away, and I want to see them sort of out of that situation. I under I can understand Kubrick's. Uh, desire to get rid of it
1: so okay uh that is all news to me and i'm stunned that here i am learning something about my favorite movie wow so thank, okay thank you. <laughs> well so this is amazing now i've got my rosetta stone now i have to go and track down one lucky bastard who is you know hiding from the antique road Show crew with this section of film in his possession. um, (laughs) So, okay, two things. The way it originally ends, the way it ends that we know today, we see him dead, frozen, literally in the maze. And then we see him figuratively frozen in time in the ending picture. You know, he's been there forever. He's always going to be there. And, that ending, as you describe it, where we can't find the body, that's a classic horror trope of sequel. You know, like, <laughs> We're going to find out that he's lumbering around out there, half dead with an axe in the woods around the hotel. And, you know, the second generation shining part two. And I, I have to think that at some point he, you know, Kubrick must have thought, yeah, I, I can't be that ham-handed. And, of course, now that's a trope that you almost expect demand at the end of any horror movie is where's the sequel coming from and that that would leave it open to that but I have to imagine that Kubrick's integrity muscle kind of acted up at the last minute and he said no no I, he's dead He's his body's literally just dead there somewhere in the snow and they can find it and they'll have to thaw it out for the autopsy but um, it'll just be a matter of time for the next family get to this job and this whole thing cycles all over again and I think that that's kind of like a, one of the themes about how mirrors figure so heavily into this is that, you know, think about it from a, I guess, pedantic perspective. When you look in a mirror, you and the mirror image are both frozen, right? You can both move around a little bit, but you're not going anywhere and neither is your reflection. That's a, it's sort of infinity, right? You hold a mirror up to a mirror, you get that weird infinity effect. And that's definitely a, a big theme here is that Jack, you know, you see him in the picture from the He's always been there. He will always be there. The next Jack is just a week or two away from thinking up how to become a caretaker at this hotel. And it will never end because the ghosts can't be conquered or driven out. They will always be there to bring in some weak-minded, damaged person who they can really sink their hooks into. So, yeah, you can't end it that way. Uh, that's, that would be not only unsatisfying, but... I don't know, almost pandering, mm. almost beg, begging people to think about The Shining Part two.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I. It, it seems that, that said Kubrick was right uh, to, to do that, and there's a there's a... Um, I forget where I read this, but he's one of the people that he worked with, uh, Jan Harlan, who was his longtime executive producer and the director of the Kubrick documentary. He is quoted as saying that Kubrick cut footage from all of his movies at some point, and he said, uh, I want to Basically, I'm I'm not quoting him directly, but he said something to the effect of, "I want to put to rest the idea that there is tons of cut footage of Stanleys lying around. He and I drove to a landfill one day and set it all on fire. I was Uh. I was there. It happened. It's gone." And you know that's very dramatic, and that makes me very sad. But that also makes me think. I, I don't know. Is that really true? It's got to be somewhere, I, doesn't it? <laughs> that's
1: that's the burning of the Library of Alexandria, man. That's heresy. But if he did it, you know, he, I'm just glad that he cuts the kind of historical figure that these little legends are still alive about. You know, yeah. he's revered. He's revered in that way, and as he should be. And, um, speaking of. Shining sequels. I know we didn't really get too much into the book because this is just about the movie. But there was a about three years ago, Doctor Sleep King wrote the sequel about what Danny's up to these days, and it's more in line with King's classic tropes against alcoholism and addiction. Um, I don't know if you've read it, but I have not. No, I would suggest reading it. It's not fantastic, but it's it's entertaining, and they're going to make a movie of it. Are they really?
0: Oh, okay, I don't know, I, I know, I know why I'm surprised at that.
1: <laughs> that's what I'm hearing, and I, I'm not surprised either, because where there's a buck to be made in Hollywood, why not? Um And, of course, I'm sure it's going to be terrible, because when you're being compared to this, I mean, I, I don't know. Jaws 2 was the only watchable sequel to Jaws, because it was still being compared to a classic. And you you, you can't stand in the shadow of a giant and be anything but an ant right so i mean whatever this is i don't have high hopes um and and i'm hopefully this will be a blip on the radar hopefully there won't be some push to have you know sequels to the shining here almost 40 years later it it just it would seem like a perversion of an already perfect piece
0: yeah you know, as, we're, as we're, we're starting to kind of wrap up here, there is one thing I guess I want to ask about because I know what my answer is and I want to hear what yours is. Do you have a particularly favorite scene, whether either just your favorite scene or your favorite scary, scariest scene of the movie?
1: So I like basically the entire segment, and it's a long one that begins <clears throat> with Jack. He's very upset. He's wandering down the hallway, and then he starts to hear that 1930s ballroom music, and he wanders into the ballroom, and... um Maybe I'm getting this out of order, but he has his drink with, you know, the bartender. And then he's seeing all the ghosts and he bumps into Grady and they take him in the bathroom and clean him up. And that's when he's first confronted with, you know, I'm one of the ghosts here and it's time to actually have a, you know, enough tap dancing. We're recruiting you. The bra's coming off. We're, we're past foreplay. I'm actually here to tell you why you're here and what we need you to do so that you can be worth us bringing you here and giving you this feeling of you've always belonged. You're going to have to kill your wife and kids just like I did in order to fulfill your purpose. And, um, it's amazing because you see that Jack's still just kind of enjoying his drink, like whether he's literally drunk on, I don't know. You're still up to the debate as to whether you should think that he actually was drinking bourbon in, in that the ghosts really brought him a drink. But, you know, he's, this is the time of his life. He's finally in his element, people, dancing, and then, no, let's go in the bathroom, and it's now all back to business, and there's no more illusion here. You're here, we're here, we need you to kill your wife and kid. Kind of lays it all bare. After that, there's no going back.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and the, the, the performance of that actor who plays uh, uh, Grady, Delbert Grady, Philip Stone, who also appeared in um, A Clockwork Orange – I love the way his precise way of speaking when he's talking about horrible things i mean he he refers to Scott McCruthers with the n word at one point and he talks right. about that you know he had to put his uh, his wife and children away because they wouldn't behave and he says your son is a very troublesome boy and he just says it with this very clipped precise language which is a pleasure to listen to and they're like god but he's saying horrible things i mean he's just it's awful but you want to talk you want to sit there and listen to him because he just is so pleasurable to to hear and i almost feel that that's the way about the movie i mean the shining looks beautiful It is a beautifully composed movie and yet it's horrible. Yet it's these horrible, horrible images going on. And there's something to that where you're drawn in by the sheer beauty of the the art direction and the colors and everything else. And yet it's a really sad, horrible story. Um. Yeah, I
1: think there's something about a butler with an English accent. They could pee on your leg and tell you it's raining and you would ask to borrow an umbrella. You know, <laughs> Especially if they're in a three-piece tuxedo like that. It's like too much class to argue with. Here I am. I, I'm, I'm powerless before you and your your accent. And yeah, he says he's a very willful boy. And my girls were willful. And I had to correct them. Correct yeah, them. Speaking that's about it. that's murder the phrase. With an yep. axe in yep. this very sanitized I had to correct them, like put them in a timeout, you know, a permanent head-cleaved yeah. open timeout. So, yeah. um yeah, again, it's a, I still think of the shining as being unassailable. Um music, cinematography, uh casting, uh just the pace, even though the pace is, you know, glacial, it's the pace is almost a character in this film and I know that sounds all film student E, but you can't take anything away. Like I, I think you see a lot of movies. Like for example, I just saw The Hateful Eight for the first time last night. And not to 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 get off topic, but way too long. You could have taken so much away and still had that movie. But I still don't think you can take anything away uh, from The
0: Shining. It it it's perfect. I agree. I agree. Uh, my favorite scene is uh, the one of it's it's when Wendy is running around with the knife and she's all of a sudden hell is breaking loose. And she looks down the hall, and she sees the guy in the bear costume, uh, performing or the dog costume performing some sort of sexual act to the other guy on the bed. And I just remember seeing that for the first time when I was fifteen or sixteen, and just like, and I you know I don't I, I generally not I don't curse on this show, but I was like, what the. F- fuck is that? It was so strange. And the zoom in and this is something Kubrick loves to do. He loves characters suddenly noticing they are being watched and turning to look at the camera. Now, in the context of the movie, it's a character looking at the—the it's someone else looking at the character. This happens at the end of 2001 as well. But there's something so scary about characters in a movie almost turning to address you in the audience and that push in is completely unexplained it makes no sense in the context of anything other than maybe there was some crazy business going on during this New Year's Eve party Uh, but it is so weird and unsettling and I can never get it out of my head it is just I, I, I love the fact that it is bewildering as to what it is and to me it is so frightening and strange and it has stayed with me all these years
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of it before, but you know, now that you're mentioning it, what that kind of makes me conjure to my mind is like, I think we're meant to understand that this is a homosexual act. I mean, you don't know who's under the bear suit, but I I think it's meant to be implied that this is two guys.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: And it's like, ugh, some dopey woman is interrupting our fun, lady. We don't need you here. You're the wet blanket at this party. <laughs> what are you doing? Get out of here! No dumb girls allowed. And it's like all the ghosts are the same way. They're like, ugh, he had to bring his dopey wife and son. Ugh. Is <laughs> he gonna kill them so he can get back to partying? And you know, maybe that one shot encapsulates that theme better than anything else that happens.
0: Maybe so. By the way, IMDB lists man in dog suit as credit to someone named Ted Cruz. <laughs> i i I, uh, I submit without- com- I submit without comment <laughs> if if that
1: isn't a meme before midnight tonight, there's no justice in this world, I'll see to it myself <laughs>
0: so I think that's a good place to end. Uh, George I, and I, I can agree. talk about this movie a lot more, but you know we try and rein this in here on the show because there's more so much more to talk about. You should go watch the movie again. It holds up really well. I have it on in the background as i'm talking i I'm, I'm feeling a little murderous myself right now, so I should stop um George. Thank you so very much for coming on and doing this. I really appreciate it. This was a movie I've been wanting to get to since I started the show, and it was just one of those, like, I, I want to make sure I do it right because it's just so it's so great, and I really appreciate uh, you coming on and being so prepared and, and being such a fan of this movie.
1: Oh, thanks, Rob. It's a real honor, and it was a, a treat, and I, I do appreciate uh, you putting these podcasts out. I've been enjoying them, and uh, just keep doing your good work.
0: Your, your fans and I appreciate what you do for the the film geek and all of us. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, where can people find you on the the internet if they want to hear more from you or just follow you? Hey, I am on Facebook, like all the rest of us sheep, and I am uh, <laughs> at
1: Victor Von Doom MD on Twitter, and uh, I try to keep a, a little bit of a
0: comedic presence out there in those two forums. Very good, very good. Thank you so much. Um, As always, if you want to contact the show, just use the contact form on the fireandwaterpodcast.com page. You can also send us an email at firewaterpodcast.comcast.net. And please follow this show on Twitter, which is at filmandwaterpod. So, everybody, thanks so much for listening. George, thank you for coming on and talking about The Shining. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, until next week, everybody, that's a wrap.
1: Larry, just between you and me, We got a very serious problem with the people who are taking care of the place. They turned out to be completely unreliable assholes.